listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Advent can be a little confusing. We all like it, but it's kind of helpful to get some definitions. This is what the Advent actually is. The Advent is the Christian celebration of Jesus' first coming and the expectation of Jesus' second coming. Jesus' first coming is something called the incarnation, the incarnate, the enfleshing of God. God was always God, but being born as a baby, Jesus added a humanity to his godness and walked among us. Jesus' second coming, the fancy word for it, is the perusia. And the perusia is a Greek word for the arrival, the coming, and official visit. And this perusia, or second advent, is the return of Jesus, not as a baby to a cradle, but a king with a crown. The second coming will be very different. He will bring the fullness of the kingdom of God to earth. He will effectively end the earth as we know it. He will bring about a final judgment, the resurrection of all the dead, and begin a new heavens and a new earth. It will be completely awesome and unlike anything that has ever happened since the beginning of the cosmos itself. The king will come, church. So when we celebrate the Advent as Christians, we look back, but we also look forward. And we hold the tension of those two things of the in-between, that the kingdom of God is already, but it's not yet. And the main themes of Advent, what we strengthen our heart with, what we strengthen, we call it citizens, the garden of our heart, what we build and plant in that garden are these four big gospel themes. They're joy, we hit last week, hope, peace, and love. And that's where this tension comes in really clear. We have joy in Jesus now, but our joy won't be complete until one day. We have hope in Jesus now, but one day our hopes will all be fulfilled in Jesus at his return. We have peace with Jesus that the world does not understand now, but it's a peace in part in a turbulent place because one day the Prince of Peace will walk among us and he will rule in a complete way. And finally, we've experienced the love of God now. But one day we're going to meet this man eyeball to eyeball. He says he holds all of our tears in a bottle in the Psalms. It's going to be a love like we don't even know. We have never experienced a marriage, a father, son, a daughter, mother, daughter, all the close relationship, best friends. All those loves will seem minor compared to the love of looking at God himself in the face. That's the promise and the hope of Advent, that he has come and he will come again. And last week, we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and their baby, John the Baptist's baby, their story, their Advent story that taught us about joy. And this week, we're going to look at Simeon and Anna and let us teach us about hope. See, Mary has already had baby Jesus, had this baby in a barn. It's been 33 days And like faithful Jewish people, they're heading to Jerusalem. And they're heading to Jerusalem to obey Leviticus 12, which says for your firstborn, you should offer a goat for atonement, a sacrifice in place to say, bless our baby boy. Thank you for opening our womb. But Mary and Joseph don't have money for a goat or a lamb. 
And so Leviticus 12 says, if you don't have money for a goat or a lamb, you can do two pigeons instead. See, to God, it's not a problem to be poor. In our society, we think poor is a problem. God says, that's not a problem to me. In the words of Augur from Proverbs 30, it tells us, give me neither riches nor poverty, so I do not steal and I do not boast. Let's keep that word for ourselves as we look at the father and mother of our Lord. And they encounter two people in the temple, Simeon and Anna. And we don't really have temples in our popular imagination. So I want to give you this rendering. And I guess someone put, built this on like Age of Empires. Anyone ever pay that growing up? That's what it looks like. And we think about the temple. We're like, oh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a little church or something. Nah, man. This is the biggest city around there, and this is the biggest, tallest structure that anyone could see. It would be the grandest things. Even if you weren't Jewish, you'd come take a look at it. You wouldn't, like, blow by Jerusalem. You'd be like, let me, let me peek that real quick. This is like the great Taj Mahal. You know, it is a huge structure. The gate is huge. The walls are huge. The colonnades are huge. And the problem with this rendering, with all of its courts and all of its prettiness, is it doesn't look anything like that because it would be absolutely packed full of people. It's like Pepper Place on a sunny Saturday in October in Birmingham. It would be packed. People are selling everything and anything, not just goats and turtle doves, but lunch, breakfast, dinner, clothes, gifts for your mama, trinkets from the temple, everything you could imagine. Every single person from all over would be here. There'd be people begging for food on one side. There'd be the richest people sacrificing cow after cow. It was everybody all the time. And so when Mary and Joseph show up with their 33-year-old, 33-day-old baby, that baby's all swaddled up like Chelsea in the back with her baby. That baby's clutched to the chest. There's no strollers. There's no car seats. This teen mom is about 17 with what she believes from the angels, God himself, clinging to her chest in a packed crowd. And they are probably panicking just to try to kill these two pigeons with the priest and get out. But then they bump into our man, Simeon, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. That just means he does the right things by God, does the right things by his neighbor, and devout means he takes the scripture seriously and prays to the God of that scripture, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, Simeon got a special promise from the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Christ, that he would see the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. The Greek is Christos in the flesh. And why God tied this to his death, we can only speculate. But a good guess is that either Simeon is advanced and aged or he's in poor health. But for whatever reason, the Lord has tied it to his death and Simeon's heartache has been waiting for Israel's consolation which is a reference to God's future comfort of his people, mainly prophesied in the book of Isaiah, which was written 600 years prior. And the back half of Isaiah is absolutely filled with these promises that the Savior will come and he will comfort God's people. It's absolutely 
full of them. I want you just to look at Isaiah 51 with me. This is a great one. It says, for the Lord comforts Zion. That's a fancy word for Jerusalem. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. So this comfort isn't just saying, oh man, things have been tough, Israel. No, this comfort that the Savior will bring is going to undo the effects of sin in the world. It's going to flip a desert to a garden. It's going to eliminate waste places and make her wilderness like a beautiful garden of Eden. It's going to change everything when this Messiah comes. And what will be God's people's response? Joy and gladness will be found in her, meaning Jerusalem, thanksgiving in the voice of song. And if you've been paying attention to Luke, you know that's already coming true. It's like a Broadway musical. Everyone is singing and dancing when they receive and know the good news of God. And in Luke 4, Jesus himself will pick a passage like this, Isaiah 61. He'll read it in a scroll on an ordinary Saturday in the synagogue. And it's another consolation passage where he says, I am that comforter. That's how Jesus announces himself as a grown man to the world. But today in the temple, Jesus is still a 33-day-old baby. And Israel's been waiting a long time. It's been 400 years since the book of Malachi. That means there hasn't been a biblical prophet in generations. 400 years of them. Furthermore, furthermore, They had lived with no real king for about 600 years since the exile. And Israel's been waiting all the way from Genesis and Abraham for a savior priest to come and take away the sins of people. And so when Simeon felt the spirit on him, leading him to the crowded temple that day, maybe he was resting, maybe he was working, maybe he was eating, we don't know, but he is in the temple. And look what happens when God brings his final and true prophet, his final and true king, his final and true priest savior enters the temple. And Simeon says this, verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his aged arms and started blessing God. This older man grabs their baby and starts to bless God in a loud voice. And the only reason Joseph doesn't start swinging or wrestling this dude is because this is the least strange thing to happen lately. They've had angels, they've had shepherds, they've had this miracle pregnancy. One guy grabbing a baby, not the most wild thing that happened today. But the words of Simeon are just intoxicating. Look at verse 28 with me. And he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. Imagine saying a line like that, that the heartache of your whole life has come true. Here it is on just another day becomes the most extraordinary day in human history, and you get to be a part of it. According to your word, we have a promise-keeping God. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation. It's not abstract. It's gurgling, maybe crying. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. It's not hidden. And it's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. And in a moment, Simeon understands this is the consolation. It's the comfort of Israel, but it's not just for Israel. It's for everybody. And it's going to change everything. God made true on his promise to Simeon. It's hope given. It's hope fulfilled. And then God used this promise to Simeon for him to be the one to announce to Jerusalem, to announce to the heart of Jewish worship and life, to say, this is the one. This is the one. Our society overlooks the aged. But God uses an older, likely sick man in some way with his wrinkled arms to hold up his own very precious son, the most precious being to ever live anywhere, holding up and declaring that this healthy newborn baby is the hope of all people forever and ever and ever. Jesus' advent, his first coming, was promised hope delivered to Simeon and us. God has comforted us by Jesus in his first coming, and he will comfort us fully in his second coming. Imagine the sigh of relief from the parents. This man isn't going to harm their baby, but instead they find out Simeon's been praying for this baby his whole life. Furthermore, Joseph and Mary sigh too that they're not crazy that God is working out a master plan all around Jesus. They're not not just the only ones in on it. This is a stranger out of nowhere knows the deal. They're being swept up in the story of God and their role in this thing is just to obey God's scripture like any other parent. Why were they there? Because they obeyed. We miss this so easy, church. And I think we can learn something here to not worry so much about our calling and stuff in life, but instead just obey what is written in Scripture, that our priority isn't figuring us all out and finding our special calling, but rather learning and listening and loving and happily submitting to the Lord's Lord's words, that that's the path of faith, that is following Jesus. And I bet just like Simeon, just like Joseph, just like Mary, and next coming Anna, We'll walk right into God's plan for our life. See, all these people absolutely nailed the plan for their life by simple obedience and prayer, putting one foot in front of the other. And God met them every step of the way. That's us too. The rules didn't change for us. And look what happens next in verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him proud parents. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Simeon declares, they marvel. Simeon does a poignant but small prophecy that Jesus is the hope of Israel and he's going to be shaking things up. That people who are right with God or repent at his coming will rise to greet Christ as the king he is. 
But hearts that aren't right with God, that refuse to repent, that hate the light, they're going to fall. As John 3.19 tells us this. And this is the judgment, the light, Jesus has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus is going to shake things up. The status quo is not the future in Jerusalem or Israel or in the world. And Simon's prophecy includes a cryptic line about the piercing singular, even though he's talking about many people, it's a singular here, the piercing of your heart meaning Mary's. He doesn't do this to scare her by any means, but it's a line for her, and we'll return to it in a moment. But now it's Anna's turn to tell the world about the hope of Jesus. Look with me at verses 36 through 38. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. Anna was likely married in her late teen years. That's about the marriage time for most Hebrew women in the first century. Let's just call it 17. If she was married for just seven years, that puts her at the age of 24. She is currently 84. So she's been a widow for six decades longer than most of this room has been alive. But what has she done in that time? Where has she been? See, it's very uncommon in their culture not to remarry in early widowhood. Even Paul will tell us in one of his epistles that if you are widowed early, that probably you should remarry. There's a lot of adult life left to live. But there's a theme here that God pays attention both to the common stories in our culture and the uncommon. And the people who our culture puts on the outside of things, God is constantly paying attention to and drawing very to the center of his story over and over and over. And in a marriage, a man and a woman give their bodies to each other. They become one flesh, as Genesis 2 describes. And Luke tells us that instead of Anna giving herself to another marriage, she is physically given her body over to the Lord choosing not to leave the temple day and night for six decades, to physically give her body over to the work of fasting and worship and prayer. She's made a choice to essentially marry the Lord himself, that that would be her life. She made that choice. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about the choice of singleness and celibacy. That it's a choice we make that to live for the Lord and for her, it was to live in his presence as much as she could. And here's the lesson for us, for all of us. We live in a culture that can't decide if our body is everything or nothing. Is it everything? So we should go around taking pictures and worshiping each other's bodies and maybe finding our own worth in our own body? Or is our body absolutely nothing? Maybe even a problem or a liability, a source of great shame. So sex becomes meaningless if your body doesn't matter. If our body doesn't matter, then physical presence doesn't matter. Why not let technology be your life instead of physical presence in relationships? 
But when we look at the scriptures, they teach us that our bodies are a gift from God to be used and enjoyed by God's ways. And there's no greater example of this than the incarnated Jesus. The body of Jesus is the heart of Advent. It's what it's all about. Because without a body, Jesus can't live a perfect life. Without a body, Jesus can't die for your sins on a physical real cross. This is not a hypothetical or theoretical salvation. It's a bloody, fleshy one. Without a body, Jesus can't rise from the dead. Church, your body is a gift. And it's to be used in God's ways. To use for the glory of God. And we see another great example of this. Because without a body, we cannot obey Jesus. And like Anna, she uses her lungs, her tongue, her mind to declare that the hope of the world is here. She sees Jesus. She probably hears Simeon. I doubt he's whispering all this. Simeon is ready and he is bringing it. Anna sees the commotion and she knows in her bones the Messiah is here. Even if he's a baby right now, he is here. Look what she does in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she walks up, she sees it's happening right here. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of God to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Just like Sophony beautifully encouraged us towards evangelism, we have Anna is feeling it. The redemption is here. The redemption is near in this baby and hope has arrived just on time. Let me tell you, church, when you have hope, you cannot help but tell others. If your evangelism is suffering, it's because your hope has grown cold. You know what pumps you up to share your faith? It's the hope that the future can be different, makes you courageous in the now. The hope that the future can be different makes you courageous in the now. There are no soldiers who go to battle if they believe they cannot win. When you share your faith, when you share the love of Christ, you will go to that fight if you believe you can win. And it's not you working up the courage to make it happen, but believing in the hope in a God who changes hearts all the time like he did your own, that you, they will hear the gospel and be changed. Nothing makes an evangelist like hope. See, here's the Advent pattern for hope from Simeon and Anna, and it's meant for us. Simeon has a heartache for the consolation of Israel and probably a heartache of his own impending death. Anna has a heartache of six decades of widowhood and probably her own impending death and waiting for the redemption of Israel. They chose to put their hope in the Lord. Their heartache was real. They just believed God was just as real and more. And they received healing in God's time. And you might say, Justin, that feels too simple. Well, they both looked to God in hope and God brought healing in his time. Yet too often, we refuse hope altogether. Too often, we don't even get past the heartache. The heartache starts to conquer us. There's a popular television show called Ted Lasso. And on an episode of it, he's talking about English football or what we would call soccer. And there's a really popular phrase, and this is the phrase. 
says, it's the hope that kills you. There's a big match coming. People start muttering to each other in a pub. It's the hope that kills you. Don't get your expectations too high. If you care too much, you might get too disappointed. Don't believe too much. Don't care too much. Don't raise your expectations because it will only hurt worse if you're disappointed. And this idea comes not from wise living, and it certainly doesn't come from Jesus, but it actually comes from a dead atheist German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. And this is what he said. Hope, in reality, is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of men. And I believe most of us have learned not to hope in our heartaches, not to follow Jesus' example of great hope, not to follow Simeon, not to follow Anna, not to pattern our life after the Psalms that detail what pouring our soul out with hope to the Lord would look like. But instead, we've learned to bury our heartaches because we believe it just hurts too much. So we put on a tough face, we find a bottle. We find some pills. We find things we shouldn't look at on the internet. We grow emotionless with a happy face or maybe just bitter and withdraw. Or maybe we go the other way and we get really busy and religious. We say we're just serving others and our life is packed. We're just a workaholic because we just want to provide. On purpose, we pack and pack and pack our schedule so there's no time for reflection. That's how you bury a heartache. That's not faith. And that's the end of hope. We bury our heartaches because we believe that to dare to hope might kill us or might prolong the pain. And I got good news for you, church that we aren't fools to hope. Amen? We aren't fools to hope, church. And Simeon's cryptic line hints at the reason why we can hope in God and trust God with our heartaches. Look back at verse 35 with me. It says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Jesus is a baby this day, but Jesus' path as the Lord's Christ will only end in his murder. It's as true that day as is the day of the cross. Mary, who rejoices this day, will have to see that day too. Her soul is the soul that will be pierced to watch her baby boy, who will always be his baby boy, even though he's a man when he dies. Jesus, in 33 years, will be back in Jerusalem, not to be announced and celebrated, but to be denounced and condemned. Jesus will die on the cross, not for his crimes. He has none. But Jesus will die for our sins because our sins are that terrible and God is that good that God would send his only son to die for us and because of us to bring his people home to him. Mary will have that sword pierce her soul because the God-man dies for us. And Romans 8.32 ties us together with why we can hope. Look at what God's giving of his son really means. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for who, church? 
Say it loud, church, for us. One, two, three. But God gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Church, because of Jesus, it's safe to hope with our heartaches. Because of Jesus, it's safe to hope with our heartaches because we know the healing is coming when Jesus returns. We know that God, if he gave his own son, he's not holding out on us in this life. He's not holding out. He already gave the most precious thing in the universe. What else is there to give? He's the God man. And he died for you, for me, for all of us. What if you walked into tomorrow believing God's not holding out on me, but he has given me every good gift. I have all I need, but yes, hope will be partial now, but it's coming true one day. See, the Christmas story is the story of a baby destined to die, a season of joy and tears. Some of y'all have tons of tears, and I'm asking you, trust the Lord for a little joy sprinkled. Some of you have so much joy, you're like in the Elf movie. And I'm asking, put your arm around a brother or sister that has a couple tears. Remember, the scriptures say it's better to go to a funeral than a birth. That it's okay to cry and have joy at the same time. The world says you can only do one. We say you can do them all at the same time, trusting in our holy, perfect, good God. Joy, hope, peace, and love of our salvation from God is ever so costly to God himself. See, our hope hangs on the Savior, the Savior's sacrifice. Like the bloodshed of the lamb they couldn't afford, so they did two pigeons instead. The Old Testament repeats for us over and over and over, and Hebrews 4 tells us straight out that there is simply no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus shed blood on the cross, and then resurrection from the dead means hope for us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise, we are most of all to be pitied in all the world. But the truth is that Jesus did rise, so we are the people of endless hope. Because if he conquered our sin, then he's conquered the biggest problem. If he's conquered death, he's conquered the second biggest problem. If he's conquered Satan and going to throw him in the lake of fire, as it tells us in Revelations, he has conquered the third biggest problem. And when Jesus returns, when that perusia happens, we are not just forgiven, but we are going to be made new. We are going to be resurrected from the dead. And it says God will wipe every tear from our eye in Revelation 21.4. That means God is personally going to attend to every heartache you have. Can you believe that, church? He's not going to overlook it all. There's no injustice he will be overlooking. There is no wronging or hurt that he will be overlooking for his beloved. He didn't die to half save you and half care. He died you to save you from beginning to end and care in a way that you've never been cared for. Every love in your life is a mere glimmer and a glimpse of what is coming one day. That's why the world fears the idea of hope because they don't got any. The world just tumbles into the future and hope of fairy tales or sentimentality or 
maybe drifts off into dreary nihilism. They have no reason to hope because Jesus is our hope. But Jesus means our hope, church, is not in vain. We are not fools to hope, but our heartaches have a place and it's hope in God. Look at Simeon. Look at Anna. To put it another way, Jesus makes hope real. And church, I want to close here with Romans 5 and how it reflects on what hope is in your life as a believer. So let this strengthen you. Let this be like an Advent balm on your soul to rub it into that heartache. I know for most of you, if you're like me, you don't have to think a long time to think about heartaches. They probably come up every night as you close your eyes for bed and every still moment as you drive a car. Let this strengthen your heart, church. God's words. We, not I, but we, the church, God's people, rejoice in the hope of glory of God. It's okay to think about the second advent. It's okay to think about the perusia and think about the glory of God. To put your hope there is a sure hope. Your bank account is not a sure hope. If your heart drops every time Charles Schwab drops, that is a problem. Put your hope somewhere secure. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. How does it produce hope? Because we start trusting less and less and less and hoping in everything else and putting more and more and more of our hope in the one day God who's coming. And hope does not put us to shame. You need a new tattoo? Not a bad one, church. Hope does not put us to shame. Mm. You will never, ever, ever be a fool to hope in Jesus. You'll be a real fool to hope in everything else. Money, pleasure, career, your house. You can look mighty foolish pretty quick. But everyone who hopes in the Lord will not taste shame at the end of that meal. They will taste the glory of God. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. How'd that happen? How's that work? For while we were still weak, at the right time, the Christ who became a man died for the ungodly, died for me, you, your mama, your cousin, everybody. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one dare even to die. But God, ooh, that's a good but God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you, me, us, together, all who believe of all time. He didn't die for a future you. He didn't die when you got your act together. He didn't die for you because you have great abilities. And if only you flipped to the Lord, you could do this and that. None of that matters. The reason God dies for you is his wild love. And to add anything to that, his love and glory is to miss the point. God dies for you because he wants to. And he does at the most highest cost it possibly could be that his own son would pay the penalty of our sin. 
Church, hope does not put us to shame. We can hope in our heartache like Simeon and Anna because God is real, God is good, God loves us, God died for us, and God is bringing us home by coming back. And if we fail to connect Christmas and the cross, we will always have an infantile faith. If we fail to connect Christmas and the cross, we will always have an infantile faith. But we can have hope because Jesus, the healing of our heartaches, has come and full healing is on the way. The perusia will come one day because the incarnation has already come. The second coming is coming because the first one has already come. Just as some doubted before the coming of baby Jesus, just as some of those were, were, were delayed, the delay of 400 years was too much for them. God's not coming for us. So it is today. But be sure, church, as he came once, he will come again for us. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.